Welcome to the Metaversible Podcast, chronicling the journey of reaching the metaverse through blockchain, digital art, and virtual reality. Welcome back to the Metaversible Podcast, where we explore the art and the science of the metaverse, this digital world in which we live in. Again, I'm one of your hosts. I'm Chris Cochran. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host and best friend, Ron Eddings. Glad to be back in the metaverse. We're about to take another red pill and dive right in. Who do we have with us today, Ron? In the studio today, we've brought Natter Davit into the Metaversible podcast. Natter is a developer working with Edge and Node and the Graph Protocol. Natter is also an investor, developer, and really tied in deep into the ecosystem of crypto, Web3, and DAOs. But there's much more to Natter's background. But most importantly, Natter, welcome to the Metaversible podcast. Thank you so much for that intro and thank you for having me. Natter, super excited to have this conversation. Let's talk a little bit about your origin story into the metaverse. What was that like for you? How did you go from your basic Web 2 components to this Web 3 phenomenon that we're dealing with today? Yeah, so I've been a developer in the you know general software space for about 10 years now. I just joined the Web 3 universe, I guess you could say, or the Web 3 ecosystem in April of 2021. My previous role was working at Amazon Web Services, so kind of like the opposite of what a lot of the Web3 teams are kind of like composed of and also working towards. You can kind of think of it as a completely different you know, paradigm than I'm in now. So it was kind of a big switch. But yeah, I worked at AWS for a little over three years as a developer advocate working in DevRel there. I was leading the global developer relations for front-end web and mobile before I left and joined Edge and Node. And I kind of have been speculating in crypto for about five or six years, just just buying and selling and things like that. I never really dove into the actual use case of a lot of these technologies until early of 2021. Um, and I think that once I started looking under the covers of what was being built here, I became infatuated and fascinated by it. And I no longer was excited about my day-to-day work at AWS. And instead, I can't, I kind of became obsessed with a lot of this, this stuff. So I immediately kind of like realized that this was more interesting to me. And then uh, one thing led to another, ended up being able to land a role with the Graph Protocol and Edge and Node. And I've been happy ever since. And that was really, uh, I kind of started interviewing back in February, March, and I started full-time in April. I love that background. And I love that background because I've spent a lot of my time in AWS and built a lot of frameworks and applications. And I'm excited to learn more about how to develop on Web3. And I know that you have a YouTube page and you do a lot of community stuff where you're sharing information about your experience as a developer, as someone experienced in Web3. But what are the big differences? Like you've had to likely change your mind on maybe some of the ways that you approach a problem when it comes to development. What have been some of the experiences or stories that you've seen moving from a well-oiled machine like AWS to Web3 where everyone is involved as a developer? Yeah, so I think that when you're 
working in a, t- a company like AWS, there is a lot of bureaucracy, but also the ramifications of that are kind of, it's hard to innovate. And if you do want to innovate, the time from idea to implementation is very long because you have to get so much buy-in that no one there is given any type of um, ability on their own to just go and build something and, and, and try to make it work. Instead, you have to convince so many people and then you have to get you know buy-in from all these different teams. And like you know it can take uh, six months, a year, two years before you can even get started building something. And then going into Web3, where it's literally the cutting edge, the bleeding edge, um, a lot of the organizational structures are built for innovation. It's the complete opposite. You're able to try and experiment things, and it's just so much more fun. And I think that that was something I didn't even really consider that much when I switched. It's just one of the things that I realized. So there is um, there's a lot to unpack you know, in this whole conversation, but I would say definitely one of the coolest things that I find about this space is how much experimentation is going on and how much fun people are having. (laughs) People are okay making mistakes and people are okay with, you know, doing things that they don't know what's going to happen and just trying new things out. And and it's encouraged even. And um, I really like that aspect of it. I'm so glad you brought up the people aspect of this Web3 phenomena, because when we started the podcast, we we almost thought to ourselves, like, is are we going to have enough people to talk to? And you are dang on right. There are so many people to talk to. But what makes it even more interesting is that we are all edging towards that adjacent possible. We are all looking for what is possible in this Web3 environment. So we're talking to people in the middle of their research. We're talking to people in the middle of their projects, or they're getting ready to launch their collection, their NFT art collection. They're doing all kinds of different things. And so we get to be a part of all these different journeys. And I know you felt that in a similar way with all the interviews and things that you're doing on YouTube. What are some of your learning lessons from that aspect, from talking to some of these people, from putting out content, educating people on Web3? What has that meant for you? I think that it's continued to expand my understanding about the ramifications of a lot of this Web3 innovation and technology. When I first started learning about it, I became really interested and fascinated around the idea of decentralized web infrastructure and um, incentivizing builders to create and use this web infrastructure. But the longer that I'm in Web3, I'm starting to realize how far-reaching and how fundamentally different that all of this stuff is, and also um, how big of a difference a lot of the, um, I would say, disruption that is happening in, in so many different areas is a result of all this stuff. So it's not, it's not as small or concise of a you know difference that this technology is making. It's actually very wide-reaching, and I think that is making Web3 sometimes hard to explain to people when they first start hearing about it because we're we're often really able to uh, convey what something is in a short amount of time because it's easy to explain maybe what machine learning is or AR or VR um, or like, you know, certain techno- technological like breakthroughs and stuff. It's It's often fairly simple to kind of like 
conceptualize all this in like a single sentence or whatever. But because um, what we're seeing with digital scarcity and, um, you know, native payments and native state, it's not only touching on how we build, you know, web infrastructure. It's also talking about how we deal with uh, finance, how we deal with um, identity, how we deal with reputation, how we deal with organizational structures. And um, because finance touches on so many things in our day-to-day lives, it ends up having these, you know, so many different ways that we can build and, and try new things. It's hard to kind of like con- concisely explain what Web3 is. Um, so you end up kind of like trying to talk about everything and then it becomes so so much of a, uh, you know, conversation that it's hard to kind of, again, make it, make it, uh, there's no elevator pitch to what Web3 is. And if someone really tries to kind of like explain all the ramifications in a single sentence or two, it's it's often not going to get the, 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 you know, definition across. I think if you wanted to kind of like talk about how to build Web3, you might just say, okay, Web3 is a set of decentralized protocols that allow us to build decentralized applications. But the ramifications of that are just so much more than that. So... I I 100% agree. It's very hard to describe this Web3 in an elevator pitch. So I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I am going to put Chris and even myself on the spot. (laughs) Chris, if you had to define Web3 in an elevator to someone that didn't know what it was, (laughs) how would it be? And and, uh, Natter, let us know how he does. had to put it in an elevator pitch because I, I definitely had a 14 minute elevator pitch but if i had to do it much much shorter i would say it's the evolution of web 2.0 that takes it towards being decentralized so instead of having these entities that basically run the traffic that run the the data that run all of the entities and things like identity you decentralize it to the rest of the people. So instead of it being a hierarchy where it's top down, it's spread across people across these environments. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that everyone has their own interpretation and I think everything you said is spot on. What about you, Ron? Yeah, if I had to throw my elevator pitch into the into the mix, I would really say it's a decentralized internet. Web 2 is centralized in some ways where you have like these big components of the backbone, even the web technologies that are routed through specific patterns or controlled by specific organizations. And Web 3 is just a decentralized version of that. It's where anyone can create and there is no centralized place for processing or storage of information. But when I'm saying all of this, it makes me remember, what about blockchain? I almost question, you know, based off of these two descriptions, is blockchain a fundamental component of Web3? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it is. I think that that what we've seen in the past when people try to build out decentralized protocols and have people that are participating in maintaining those is that there isn't a good incentive mechanism built in. And I think that's why a lot of these haven't succeeded in the past. I think what blockchain enables is this digital scarcity, which then enables people to have a reason to be innovating and building out because they do have now financial upside. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's 
what the entire software industry is kind of like, you know, one of the, the things that it's built on is that people are innovating and disrupting things. Oftentimes, the result of that is a financial upside for the innovators. So we have now with these decentralized protocols that are enabled via some type of like native token, either a governance token or utility token, they're able to provide financial upside, not only to the people that create the things from the very beginning, but also all of the people that have contributed to it along the way. So if I come up with an idea and I, you know, throw this idea out there and I get a thousand people on board and they're all building this thing and we launch it and we launch our own token, there's nothing wrong with those people getting paid. And there's nothing wrong with those people sharing ownership. I think that's what scares the people the most that are at the very, very top echelon of society. They're so used to kind of having uh, the privilege and all the the gatekeeping protecting them that when they see opportunities for other people to have that same level of participation, it scares them because they no longer kind of have these barriers that have been protecting them for so long. So from my perspective, I feel like people just need to get with it, understand it and collaborate with it rather than try to fight it. Because when you have things that are as powerful as this, fighting it is a futile effort from my perspective. Ron, I want to pivot it back to you. So we are full-time content creators at this point. You used to be way more technical than I was. You were in the bits and bytes. You were developing things, building projects, and even doing a lot of coding. These days, you do less of that. You still get to flex your muscle every once in a while. But looking at this technology, does this make you want to get back on the ones and twos? It does. And it does for a different reason. Like Natter was describing there's incentive for making things decentralized. There's incentive for the workers. There's incentives for the investors. There is a lot of opportunity out there. And when I'm thinking about my passion and programming and being technical, it comes from wanting to make an impact in people's lives. And if all goes well, receive some monetary gain at the same time. With Web3 and these decentralized concepts, there is an opportunity for people to almost lease your applications, for people to leverage the benefits from your source code and also from the functionality of your application and for you to receive monetary aspects from that. I know a lot of NFT projects are using these bits and bytes from the blockchain and using these applications to ultimately make a successful mint and launch of their NFT projects. So I definitely want to get back into the swing of things, but I am also struggling with where to start. Right. And that, and I think that segues perfectly, Natter, to my next question. And that is, with people wanting to get into Web3 development, even people that haven't touched any of this technology whatsoever, whether Web2 or Web3, they just want to see, they want to dive into this world, world of Web3. Should they start with Web2 and learn some of the, the terminology, the components there? Or do you think that there is an avenue for them to go straight to Web3 and basically be a child of this new movement? I think that people can jump directly into Web3 without having any experience in Web2 because, again, a lot of the ideas and aspects around Web3 are not only around software development, but they're around how we organize and incentivize players and people within different systems, whether they be a company or a DAO or just uh, you know anything where you have some type of tokenization or digital scarcity or ownership. You know, you have artists. You have creators of all types. You have 
movie creators, you have photographers, you have uh, singers, you have all types of people that are now participating in Web3. And it's one of the more interesting aspects of it is that we're no longer just like building out these B2B or really boring ass like projects. <laughs> we're now able to like more easily integrate with other parts of society and uh, mix and match and come up with all these cool ideas. I feel like if you're a developer though, in particular, and you're kind of like looking at what to specialize in, I think that you should just sample all of the different things that are out there and, and, and research all of them and then figure out what is exciting to you because Web3 is just one of hundreds of areas of expertise. You might dive into virtual uh, reality or machine learning or artificial intelligence or mobile app development or desktop app development. I think that like you just have so many opportunities that are out there. This is just opening the door to another opportunity. But I do feel like Web3 can be... Uh, accompanying all these other areas in different ways. Because let's say that you wanted to build a software company uh, a year ago, you might have gone the traditional route where you try to raise some money and you give away a large portion of your company to a bunch of like vulture venture, venture capitalists. You then, you know, spend the next five to 10 years slaving away, trying to kind of build your fucking company up, not knowing what's going to happen. So you might spend like the five or 10 best years of your life building something that becomes nothing. You also have people that are part of your company that are given uh, portions of ownership in the form of, of stocks that never become worth anything. Uh, let's say you're one of the one or 0.01% that goes public. Only 10 years down the line, do you see any return on that investment and all of that, that labor and, and all of that work? That's the old way of doing things. The new way of doing things is coming up with a great idea, getting a lot of different stakeholders on board and tokenizing it. You're immediately able to give value to all of the people that helped you build that thing. You're also able to have thousands of people that are shareholders from day one of your project. It just makes so much more sense. And if people that have helped build this thing from day one are able to share in that upside and you're able to say, okay, I don't need to own 20% of this company. I think it's okay if I own 0.5% of this. And instead I want to give the other 19% plus the other 80% that we typically would have given to venture capitalists. We want to give that to the community that helped build this thing. You now have more of a collective ownership and you have more fair ownership and you have less financial inequality going forward. As an entrepreneur, I've always been interested in scaling and building a big business, but it's always a little discouraging when you have to think about giving someone such a huge stake of your company. Of course, they're infusing capital into your company and, and into your idea, but at the end of the day, it's still long hours. It's still probably less money than you're probably earning You know, when it comes to how much time and energy that you're putting into an idea. And I love the, I love the fact that we can almost decentralize that that component and give everyone a benefit, whether they're a shareholder, just an enthusiast of the project, or they are a creator themselves. One of the other pieces I wanted to talk to you about blockchain and Web3 in general is the graph. You know, using these blockchain technologies to pull information out. In my mind, it almost seems like there's going to be an infinite amount of data on the blockchain and that's going to raise prices, slow down miners and things like that. But is that the case? How does 
the blockchain grow in a scalable way? And how do you search that data as we add on more details to it? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think that when you hear some people in different blockchain corners talk, you often find maximalists. And these maximalists will try to convince you that their blockchain is the answer and that every other blockchain is not necessary, but theirs is. Well, the reality is physics will stop that from happening because let's say we do move all financial transactions onto a single blockchain, but we also are going to have exponential use cases for these distributed ledger technologies. You cannot have all of these transactions happening on one blockchain. So what we're instead going to have is a multi-blockchain world where you have multiple blockchains. They're all you know specialized and focused maybe on doing their own thing, or you might have you know, multiple blockchains that are, you know, good for the same thing. But at the end of the day, you know, you'll have dozens probably of, of blockchains that are all, you know, probably high throughput within a few years. We're talking about probably half a million to a million transactions per second across a few dozen chains that will be able to manage, you know, financial transactions in the um, same range as what we're probably seeing from like the credit card companies and stuff. But we're also going to be seeing so many other types of financial transactions built into day-to-day gaming and, and things like that. So for instance, on Fortnite, you know, instead of like buying a skin and um, and then you're kind of like stuck with it for the rest of your life, you can't ever like, you know, do anything with it. Instead, you might just buy your Fortnite skin on the blockchain and you're holding it as an NFT and you might be able to take that around with you to other games. And then like 10 years later, you're like, you know, now interested in this other game, you can kind of maybe sell it or, or transfer it to someone else and they can, they can use it and enjoy it, enjoy it. So all of these transactions are transactions on the blockchain. So we need to be able to handle like all of these transactions. So yeah, I think what we're going to end up seeing is multi-chain and that's the future of the graph. We are a multi-chain team, we really are focusing on um, supporting all of the major blockchain networks. We already support a few dozen. And we support not only EVM compatible chains like Avalanche, Celo, Polygon, and Ethereum, mm-hmm. but we're also adding support for Cosmos, Near, Solana. So you name it, if it's popular and it's being used, we want to index it. Love that so much. You definitely have to spread the wealth and spread the love. Speaking of love, uh, this past weekend, one of my favorite experiences of the weekend, my in-laws came over and I'm pretty close with my father-in-law. He's in the 70s. He's very, very down to earth, easygoing guy, but he doesn't know too much about technology. Quite often I have to help him with his phone and his computer. But this weekend, I was sitting around doing some NFT stuff and I was like, yeah, let me show you what, what we got going on over here. So I was showing him some of my NFTs. I showed him my Phantom wallet. I showed him a little bit of this. I showed him the marketplaces, but he got it. I explained it in a way where he understood it. And it was like, this makes all the sense in the world. And this stuff is super, super cool. As an educator, I know you've talked to a lot of people about the, this technology. What has been your most impactful education moment for somebody out there? In Web3 or just in general? Either one. So I would say like in Web3, it's it's seeing that light bulb moment where they kind of realize that all the things that are happening in Web3 and, and stuff, and they just start to actually, you know, make sense to them. And it's 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 almost always kind of like a moment in time that you can almost kind of like see happening in real time. They often will just, you know, be on the sidelines and stuff. And then one day you'll just 
have them message you or call you or it's like very, very rushed. They just need to express that to you. And they're just like so excited and they're just like, oh my God, this is like, this is so crazy. This is so cool. Um, I love seeing that happen. That happens all the time. I think for me though, as like a teacher, I've been doing all kinds of stuff since very early on. I created, you know, a couple of meetups here in Mississippi because there weren't any. I created the first coding school here because there wasn't any. I think the coolest thing for me was when I started my coding school and um, I put on a class for JavaScript and Angular at the time. And I had like my first group of two people that showed up and we were kind of like going through manipulating client side data. Like we did some two-way data binding stuff and, and someone there like clicked for them around, you know, programming. And it was probably the first time that I had been teaching something that someone had like really had this aha moment. I still remember that. That was like seven years ago, but that was probably the coolest experience because now I've had that happen so many times since then. But I think the first time it happens when you're helping someone uh, get to that light bulb moment, it's always impactful. Couldn't agree more, especially when you're making a positive change out of the goodness of your heart. That's one of the things that Chris and I are really focused on today, especially with the Metaversible podcast. We still have a lot to learn. I mean, who doesn't about Web3 and blockchain? But we're hoping to share our journey with the world. Whoever listens to this podcast, we hope that they can get a few nuggets out of it and then ultimately do something with that information. For me, in my experience, it's really been educating my family about NFTs. My family, they've all had some level of interest when it comes to cryptocurrencies and the, the fact that there is incentive built into the currency by design when it comes to exchanging it and adding use cases on top. But I think that they have a bit of reluctance due to the price. It almost seems like there is this barrier of entry when it comes to understanding the technology or being able to afford some of the coins. For someone that doesn't have an abundance of financial resources and money, what would be your recommendation for them to get started and begin to realize the value of Web3 and the blockchain? Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely one of the biggest things for me around how do we find solutions for that? And it's all around that very, very complex problem to solve around you want to have a low barrier to entry, but you also need to have some type of civil resistance. Because if you make something of value open for anyone to claim, then you're going to have people that have malicious intent that are going to take advantage of that and game the system. Let's say, for instance, you have entry into a DAO and you have a limited number of 8,000 spots and it's free for someone to mint an NFT on Solana, then what's stopping someone from minting all 8,000 of those and and gatekeeping essentially everyone else from joining that community. I think in general with Web3, you have that same problem. You want to kind of provide value, but you also um, you know, need a way to keep the value for all the other participants without them losing whatever value that they have. So it's all about civil resistance. There is, of course, people that are trying to solve this. You have like WorldCoin, which was this big thing that they launched a couple months ago to a lot of controversy because it was essentially them airdropping tokens to everybody in the whole world. But to claim the tokens, you had to like do this eye scan. And, and, and a lot of people were freaked out by that, of course. But for me, the advice I always give is if you, if you want to get into Web3 and you don't have any money to, to be able to kind of like 
buy tokens because if you do even have a few tokens uh, on Polygon, for example, you can participate in Rabbit Hole, uh, which is uh, learn to earn platform. So you kind of like learn how to use Web3 stuff and you earn tokens just for completing these tasks. But some of those tasks are on chain because again, it's they're trying to solve civil resistance. And in order to kind of like prove that you're a person, you have to kind of often have a transaction. But to do that, you have to have some crypto. Build space is cool because you can learn how to build stuff as a developer and they they give you NFTs for free, stuff like that is pretty cool. I think if you really want to start earning some real money, some real value in tokens, and you don't have anything to start off with, then exploring all of the grants programs that are out there in the different Web3 protocols makes a lot of sense because you can often learn something new, create a tutorial, and then ask for a grant for that tutorial. You can say, okay, I just created this really awesome Solana tutorial. I bet the Solana team would think this is valuable. So I'm going to apply for a grant for $2,000, for example. And I'm going to like let them pay me in USDC on the Solana network. And then you have 2000 bucks to start off with. Of course, you can get grants for 5000 50000 100000 depending on what you're doing. But as a developer, the easiest way to earn crypto is to participate in a decentralized uh, protocol, whether it be a DAO or a network or something like that, and find out their grants program, find ways that you can contribute and and earn money. For instance, in our DAO, the developer DAO, we've given away uh, over $10,000 or $15,000 worth of memberships. The membership is free. All you have to do is mint the token, but to mint the token, you have to pay gas. So to get around that, we've just been giving away tokens. And if you earn, if you if you got one of these tokens and you helped develop the community over the course of the first month or two, then you're going to just get airdropped a bunch of tokens that will probably be worth at least something. So um, finding opportunities like that to participate and earn tokens without having to actually, you know put any money up front to me is a usually a good opportunity. That's awesome advice and definitely a good pathway to take. Let's spread the wealth a little bit right now. I'm sure there's somebody that's listening to this podcast and they're already excited about web three NFTs art, cryptocurrency and all this stuff, but they know that there are people out there that just don't get it. And even some people that don't just merely not get it, but they hate it. They push it away from them and they keep it out of their bubble. And the people that are listening to this podcast, they want to have a way to articulate the impact of Web3 technologies. They want to incentivize people to at least do their own research. What is the best way for someone to spell out for someone in lay terms? Why is this important for people to look into today? I think that you're just seeing more and more institutional or traditional companies and projects that are just building it in natively. So for instance, PayPal, Stripe, all the gaming companies, Meta, you know, uh, even Amazon with their new crypto teams and all these other things that are happening. I think that at some point people are just not going to be able to ignore it anymore. But I don't really, I think there's two types of skeptics out there. There are the skeptics that are open to like a discussion and, and really are interested about learning, but they're um, also skeptical. And those are the great people that to have these conversations with. But there are also people that have kind of built up this 
very, very strong uh, narrative publicly about their stance on certain things. And it's it's very tough for someone to kind of take a public stance against something and then change their mind publicly, because then you as a person have to essentially publicly uh, admit that you're wrong. And I think as our, you know, the way that our brains work, we don't like to do that. So uh, engaging with the people that have kind of made it part of their personality to hate on certain things aren't probably the most valuable use of your time. So I wouldn't even try to convince any of those people. I would just build, have a good time, share the cool stuff that you're doing, uh, uh, just enjoy what you're doing and, and kind of like make it to where other people can kind of like see how much fun you're having, because often that's a really great way to kind of like get people's interest because if, because really we are having so much damn fun, like going back to what I was doing like three years ago just seems dreadful at this point. <laughs> so, um, you know, like it, there's no way to fake that. We're just, we're, 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 we're building cool stuff. I, I do feel like we're changing the world for uh, in a positive way. We're having fun. Like, you know, it's, it's great, but I think I would not spend even a single second of my time trying to kind of convince the hateful skeptics, the people that are open-minded skeptics, I would just try to have open-ended dialogue with them and 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 also admit that everything is not binary. Like there isn't, you can't just look at Web3 and say, oh, it's, it's perfect because it has its great things, but there are also things that still aren't figured out yet. And there are even drawbacks to like, you know, the way that things are done today that we still need to improve. So I think just being honest about it is probably the best way to engage with skeptics that are decent people that are not coming into the conversation with bad faith. Perfect answer. I couldn't have said it better myself. Natter, for folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the great content you're putting out there for everyone, what are the best ways that people can do that? Yes. So um, I, I would say check me out on Twitter. It's Dabit3, D-A-B-I-T and the number three. Also have a YouTube channel where I interview people in the Web3 space also do tutorials and stuff. So YouTube slash Nader Dabit, N-A-D-E-R-D-A-B-I-T is my YouTube channel. Perfect. We'll be sure to drop your social and your YouTube channel in the show notes for everyone to check out. I would highly recommend it. Thanks again, Nader, and we'll see everyone next time in the metaverse.